Welcome to the Ether Podcast. Today, we are joined by Major Joshua Dryden, U.S. Air Force. Major Dryden is the author of Iran, Israel, and the Struggle for the Skies Over the Middle East, featured in our spring 2023 issue. He is the Director of Operations for the 311th Training Squadron, Presidio of Monterey, California, where he oversees a team directing training for over 600 airmen, attending language courses at the Defense Language Institute Foreign Language Center. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. Thanks. It's great great to be here. So first of all, I think our readers would be interested in how you developed your interest in the subject matter. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it sort of starts originally uh, with my first job in the Air Force, which was learning Hebrew as an enlisted linguist a long time ago. From that point, I've kept up with the Middle East as a region, and then I subsequently got both undergrad and graduate degrees focused on the region, and especially focused based on my Hebrew background on Israel, sort of Israeli politics, Israeli security. And then increasingly in the last decade or so, I focused a lot on Iran. I built on that when I was an instructor at the U.S. Air Force Weapons School out at Nellis Air Force Base, where we focused on sort of asymmetric threats and how we can bring together capabilities across the spectrum of the joint force to get after some of those asymmetric problems. And then this all culminated during my time as a grad student out at the Naval Postgraduate School, where I was taking a course on the history of wars in the Middle East. Fascinating course. But one of the things that I didn't see in that course was a direct attempt to address the role of air power, in particular over the last decade or so, as Israel and Iran have sort of this fairly well-known shadow war going on. Everybody acknowledges it's there, but most of the writing on the shadow war focuses on the cyber aspects, the Mossad and sort of the intelligence roles, and then to a limited extent, the proxies that Iran has been using in places like Lebanon and Syria. So this all sparked my interest. And I said, why is no one writing on the topic? Maybe this is an area where I can enrich the conversation and proceeded to do a bunch of research and write the article that you just referenced. That's a great way to get to those topics when you find those gaps in research and literature. And um, it's great that you put that out there. And I think it's definitely filled a gap. So thanks. So on that, you mentioned the last decade. Can you sort of go into more detail about the development over the last 20 years or so since the probably the 2006 Lebanon War of Israel and Iranian air power capabilities and how specifically how air power figures into their broader military strategies? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a topic that uh, a guy could write a book on. (laughs) I have not done that. And so in order to stay succinct, I will just very briefly note what I think many of our listeners probably already understand. The Israeli military, since the 1948 War of Independence, has seen technology as a key to their military strategy. And that is largely because their economic capacity and their limited population size didn't really allow them to use mass, and they didn't have time in their favor. Because of that, even starting really about 1949, even during the War of Independence, the Israeli military had already recognized air power as a linchpin of their overall military strategy. And the Israelis have sustained an excellent air force. The Israeli Air Force is certainly one of the best, best in the region and certainly one of the best in the world at the tactical and operational level of doing what they do. So I don't want to dive too much into that, except to say that to present, the Israelis have sustained that focus on air power as the key to short, high-intensity warfare that they view as sort of to their advantage in comparison to their neighbors there in the region. Iran is a little bit 
trickier and a little bit more interesting case. Most people don't think about air power and Iran in the same sentence. But anybody who's focused on Iran and the Iranian military over the last several decades would be able to point to the fact that Iran has sort of changed their focus over time. And a lot of this stems all the way back to the revolution in 1979. You know, under the Shah, Iran did have an advanced military and even an advanced air force with things like F-4s, F-14s, robust capabilities that they could employ that were, for their time, cutting-edge capabilities. Because of arms embargoes and challenges buying weapons since the revolution, the Iranians have really had to go internal to a large extent. They have purchased a few different aircraft from places like China, but none of those really brought them to the cutting edge. Instead, Iran, from my perspective and what I write about in the article, is they've sort of taken their asymmetric overarching strategy and applied that to each domain. And that includes to the air domain. And one of the ways that they get after this is by building what I would consider sort of a triad. And, you know, again, anybody who's interested, jump into the article. I go in in depth in the article. But they basically realize that they cannot support the investment and the R&D for technology to have an air force that would compete with the Israelis, for example, with something like an F-35. Iran just doesn't have that. So what they've done instead is focus on developments in three different areas. The first aspect of that is ground-based air defenses, and this includes the radar systems, the sensors to detect and monitor their airspace, and then weapons engagement, things like surface-to-air missiles that are used to engage aircraft in their airspace. They pair that with something that they have developed very well over the last several decades, which is their rocket and ballistic missile capabilities. Now, those don't control the air, but they employ through the airspace to deliver a strike capability. And then the third aspect that I think probably the listeners are going to be more familiar with recently is the Iranian unmanned aerial vehicles and aircraft. Developments on those started even in the 1980s, so this is not a new thing for Iran, but they've really brought all three of these components together using their ground-based air defenses to contest, is the way I review it. It, It's not an ability to control the air domain, but they contest the air domain. They deny that domain in limited times and limited geographic areas to their adversaries, and then they employ their own UAVs and ballistic missile and rocket capabilities in the air domain to strike at their adversaries. So in a nutshell, I guess that would be sort of a succinct version of those developments over the last 20 years, bringing us up to recent times where Iran has really demonstrated a capability to contest the air domain. And, you know, as I'm sure we'll get into in our discussion further, Israel has recognized this. And certainly Lebanon 2006 is one of those key points where Israel recognized that this is a real threat. This is not some distant future threat. It's time now Iran is a viable threat to the Israeli homeland. And more importantly, Iran, through its proxies, has credit to them, done a pretty good job of encircling Israel sort of threatening Israel with retaliation, just as Israel threatens Iran with retaliation using their advanced aircraft, like their F-35s, where they can do airstrikes in Iran. Israel frequently trains to this and practices, and I referenced this in the article as well. So both sides now have a pretty viable capability to threaten retaliation against the other, both of them using the air domain to an extent to do that. Yeah, I was interested where you drew a parallel between Julian Corbett's famous 1918 approach to sea control and Iran's approach to the air domain as uh, similar uh, historic. Because in the article, you do do some yep. um, historical analysis between air power theory and, and how it applies. So that was interesting. Yeah, and I think Corbett, to me, is the best way to view this. I know most people, I'm an airman, most people would expect me to draw upon air power theory. But air power theory, back to Duhay and Billy Mitchell, When you look at the big air power theorists, they were focused 
largely on flying things in the air, which is absolutely a huge component of air power. And that is the approach we as the United States have taken. But that's because we have the resources and the technology to employ in the air domain with advanced aircraft like F-35s, F-22s, our fighter fleet, our tanker fleet. We have this robust capability. Corbett, I think, really addresses an interesting approach when he talks about sea control because he didn't view it as binary. It wasn't either you have control or your adversary has control. He viewed it as always contested. From my perspective, when you look at the way Iran approaches the air domain, it's the exact same approach. They consider it always contested. They will asymmetrically contest that domain, even though they are not flying advanced fighters in the domain, they can still use ground-based capabilities to deny or to limit their adversary's ability to employ through the air domain. To look at a current model, and we'll get to this at the end, when we're looking at modern militaries and what you have to say about facing asymmetric threats. I mean, you know, the Russian experience in Ukraine and and the drones is another example of a West, uh, you know, a fully functioning air power based air force that has to face, you know, those drone capabilities. So, yeah, yeah, it's certainly a unique aspect. And I think it's one that probably in the last decade has gained more and more appreciation in military and strategy circles. Seen places like Armenia, Azerbaijan, where you see drones used, and the Bayraktar drones in particular, mm-hmm. but also in places like Libya, across the U.S. counter-terror efforts across Africa and the Middle East, and then obviously Iran has been employing them as well. So this is something that I think militaries have recognized as a capability that you almost have to incorporate to be a viable force in this day. Right. Well, so then as we move on to looking at how Israel views its ongoing contested space, you know, the campaign between wars, the Israeli uh, acronym is M-A-B-A-M. I will let you say that (laughs) in Hebrew, but uh, can you talk a little bit more about the concept of Mabam? Yeah, so Mabam is is sort of a unique Israeli approach. I appreciate it, and I, I think it's something that really interested me as I wrote the article. From an Israeli perspective, historically, before we get to Mabam, they had sort of two broad viewpoints. The Israelis viewed preparation for war as sort of phase one, and then employment in war as phase two. And that was a fairly binary back and forth. You were either preparing for war, training your force, equipping your force, being ready, or you were employing the force. The problem that the Israelis recognized that Iran brought to the forefront for them is that this sort of gray zone, asymmetric, proxy-based pressure on Israel wasn't a full war. So this wasn't a case where they're mobilizing all the reserves in society and reserves are a huge component of the Israeli military. We don't have time to go deeply into that right now, but for anybody interested, several of the footnotes reference some great history books on Israeli military capabilities and reserves are a huge component of that. So this isn't the phase two of employing the reserves, mobilizing everyone and employing the force, but it's also not quite phase one because Israel recognized the strategic level, they needed a way to push back against this Iranian pressure And so Mabam is this campaign between wars, and it fits very neatly into this gap in between preparing for war and launching in war. It stands for Hamaracha Ben Hamilchamot. And what that means is the literally campaign between wars. But conceptually, what it meant was this can't be viewed as a binary issue. We are not simply not at war or at war. We must maintain an ability to push pressure against our adversaries, including through kinetic means. 
including through not just the Mossad, which has been engaged in sort of gray zone activities throughout their existence, but using the conventional Israeli military to push back against military forces that were being proliferated to Iranian proxies, in particular in Syria, but also in Lebanon. So all of this to say the campaign between wars fills this gap. It fills this niche. And I draw this out in the article a little bit. I think it actually draws upon a pretty robust Israeli history of employing, in particular, their air force in one-off engagements. And in the article, I write a little bit about this, but I would personally point back to 1981, striking the Iraqi nuclear reactor, 2007, the Syrian WMD out there in Darazar, Syria, kind of northeastern Syria. So the Israeli military has a history of doing something like this, but those had been viewed as sort of unique one-offs. Uh, I'm not privy to the Security Council-style debates that they're having in the Israeli cabinet, but my assumption is these were viewed as such existential crises that Israel justified switching from that preparing for war into the, hey, we're going to actually launch a very short single strike in order to destroy a single capability, and then we'll switch back to being in the preparation phase. With Iran, there wasn't an option. It wasn't a single focus point where they could go strike one place in Syria or one place in Lebanon. Instead, Mabam started originally in Lebanon with an attempt to transfer advanced air defense weapons. And this is specifically SA-17s that the Iranian, the Iranians and the Syrian military were trying to transfer to Lebanese Hezbollah. Israel viewed that as a red line. After striking those, Mabam expanded to include strikes on a whole host of different air defense capabilities spread across Syria and the Levant. And that to me is what makes it unique and interesting. It's recognition that it's not binary. We're not quite at war but we have to conduct warlike activities in order to maintain pressure on Iranian proxies in the region. The concept is interesting. I remember reading about it uh, some years ago when they first were, you know, sort of conceptualizing it um, decades or ago. Do you see any implications or, yeah, implications maybe for the U.S. Air Force and U.S. military strategy looking, I mean, do we do the same thing? (laughs) Is that what a gray zone, or is this more tactical? I no, I think it is. So this is a strategic choice. And you know, I'll get into this in the, the broad air power lessons a little bit later on. But I think we do. I would argue that we in the West are not quite as eager on the kinetic side. However, uh, in particular, what the National Security Agency has been doing, what 16th Air Force under General Hawk started doing with information warfare, with competing forward, moving out into our adversary networks, to me, that's a very clear parallel. It's a recognition that, hey, we're not quite at war, but we are getting these constant probing attacks from both state and non-state adversaries that are targeting our networks, that are inflicting real harm on U.S. citizens. And we can't sit back here in a purely defensive posture. We have to move forward. You know, obviously, cyber is a little bit different of a battle space. The Israelis, I think, historically and certainly currently have just been more comfortable blurring those lines between the non-kinetic space and the kinetic space, where uh, I don't go into depth in the article. I think uh, it would require a whole nother article to address the leading role of Israeli cyber, SIGINT, and the intelligence enterprise in Israel in fighting this campaign between wars. Uh, Yes, the Air Force gets a lot of credit because they're the last 10% of each operation, but the first 90% of every one of these operations that Israel is launching 
is all done by their intelligence services as they find targets, as they prioritize those targets as what is the most viable and lethal threat. They have to characterize those targets. They have so far been pretty careful about avoiding civilian casualties and being very precise in their targeting efforts. And then, you know, again, the guys that kind of get the credit, that last 10% are the F-15Is, the F-16Is that go out and actually hit the pickle button and drop a munition on some Iranian or Iranian proxy piece of equipment. Next, I'd like to have you talk about the air power lessons that you talk about in your article. So what what air power lessons and goals should Israeli military and political leaders focus on? And then again, I kind of go back to that question I had. What does this say in general about conventional Western air forces facing an asymmetric threat? Yeah. And I think it's important to break it down into those two different components. So thank you for doing that. The lessons to me, roughly broken that way, could also be viewed from the levels of war as well, from the tactical, operational, and strategic levels of war. And so in the article, I address, from my perspective, what I think are some of the tactical and operational implications of the Israeli approach, some of which I think are lessons the Israelis have learned that are probably relevant to other Western militaries. And and I use the term Western merely to say to an advanced air force, an air force that relies on advanced technology in the employment of that force. On the tactical tactical and operational side, and I'll apologize in advance for the purist because I'm going to blur the lines between the two because this is a campaign after all, and there are tactical actions in that campaign, but they are really seeking op- what I would consider operational level effects and pushing back a proxy that is tied to Iran. At that level, I address just a few of these in the article, but I think one of them has been sort of a bit of a shout out to the intelligence role in the campaign between wars, the way Israel approaches it. And Israel recognizing, even in Lebanon, where in spite of their efforts to conduct these targeting operations, Israel has had to significantly scale back airborne ISR over Lebanon. I don't have good data on this at present, but I presume they have also had to significantly scale back airborne ISR over Syria as well. And Israel has done a pretty good job of pivoting to space, cyber, SIGINT, and something they've always been good at, which is human collection across the battle space. I think that's a lesson that we on the West could learn. Uh, From my perspective, we do pretty well in some of those regards, but in particular in the human side and tying together, again, sort of what 16th Air Force has been trying to do for the U.S. Air Force, this information warfare approach where we're bringing together all the different disciplines and then layering in information operations, layering in cyber operations. I think that's a lesson that we can take away, that for those who sit in a cockpit who are an essential aspect of any presentation of air domain forces, we have to work together to recognize that we're probably not going to get you the airborne ISR that you've been used to in the last 20 years of the coin fight. We're going to have contested domains. Uh, I would point to, in particular, the RQ-4 shoot down when the Iranians shot down our RQ-4 of the Persian Gulf in 2019. Like That's just one case in point. We're not going to be able to give you, as, as an ISR professional myself, I can say, I'm not going to be able to offer you some of those same capabilities. What I can offer, though, is layered intelligence across multiple other domains that will still get you the same outcome of precise targeting information. So that's sort of one big takeaway. The other thing that I think the Israelis have done well that we can also learn from and start thinking about is towards the tail end as the threat escalated and the Iranians pushed more and more advanced surface-to-air systems into Syria, the Israelis have started changing their strike packages. And what this boils down to is instead of multiple 
small strike packages where you'd have maybe four, eight, or a dozen aircraft going in. The Israelis have shifted from doing that multiple times in a month to doing single large strike packages where they'll build out a large assortment of targets, find the correct aim points for all of those targets, mass a strike package with, and I don't know numbers on this, obviously we're speaking at the unclassified level and I'm not privy to the Israeli planners, but it seems as if some of these strike packages have gotten considerably larger just based on the number of aim points they're hitting in a single mission. So by packaging the strike package together, what the Israelis have accomplished is they have minimized risk. Instead of spreading risk over time with multiple aircraft, they've stacked that risk all together in a brief duration for less than an hour in a given month. They can push in a large package with integrated suppression of enemy air defense assets, conduct a mass strike, hit all those same targets, and then get everyone back out without losing any aircraft. I think that is something that, frankly, we have gotten out of the habit of doing as the U.S. Air Force because of sort of ATO operations in the counter-terror, counter-insurgency environment. We're sending out two-ship and four-ship strike assets. They're doing strikes in a fairly uncontested environment and then coming back. I would say we should look to the Israeli model there and start thinking about and building, as I will give a shout out to the Air Force Weapons School, this is absolutely still happening there, but building mass strike packages to take advantage of these limited durations when we can layer our effects, get in, accomplish the outcomes we need to, and get the force out while minimizing risk. And then the last thing, to not drone on for too long on the subject, but I think those are sort of the good lessons, things that we can take. I'm a little less clear on what the outcomes or lessons are at the strategic level, but I have a couple concerns. One of them being that from a strategic level, one could make the case that looking down into the operational and tactical level, the Israelis have won every engagement. They've conducted at this point, uh, by last count, I think sometime in 2022 is the last Israeli author that I was able to find data from who's saying that according to the Israeli military, they've dropped well over 5,000 munitions as of spring of 2022. It's probably continued apace. I assume they've probably gotten close to, if not surpassed, 6,000 munitions dropped in this campaign between wars. You know, not, not a paltry number by any means. This is a significant number of munitions, a significant number of sorties. Throughout that time, to my knowledge, they have only lost a single aircraft. They did have an F-16I shot down, which was able to actually get out of Syrian airspace and back into Israeli airspace in northern Israel. So they didn't lose the pilot. That was, a, I think, a good win for the Israelis. But they'd still lost an aircraft from a fairly limited inventory of advanced aircraft that the Israeli Air Force operates. In that time, they've also seen their ability to operate airborne ISR over Lebanon in particular degraded significantly. So from a strategic sense, they've conducted all of these operations. They've done all of these strikes. They've certainly killed proxies. They've destroyed equipment. But they're seeing their ability to exploit the air domain shrinking year after year during this campaign. So one must question from a strategic perspective, is this effective? Is this actually going to arrive? You can win every operational and tactical engagement and still have a failing strategy. And in my mind, I would point back to the U.S. experience in Vietnam, even more so the Japanese experience in China during World War II, clearly won every engagement and yet overstretched themselves strategically and could not finish the fight or end that war in a manner that was suitable to the Japanese leadership. I would say the Israelis are hopefully thinking this same problem through, like how long can they sustain this campaign between wars? And what are the 
red lines for the Israeli military to say, hey, this is just not a winning operation. We're winning all the tactical and operational level engagements. And yet our ability to exploit the air domain shrinks. Our ability to realistically launch a strike into Iran is shrinking year after year. So where are we going with this? And I would just anecdotally say, I think you see a totally different diplomatic perspective with stuff like the Abraham Accords, which may in the long term prove a more viable strategic option that gives Israeli outcomes they're looking for. And so to me, this is sort of a cautionary tale of the limits of air power. Air power does great things. I'm a huge proponent of air power. When used appropriately, as the Israelis have numerous times, air power can be decisive and can give you strategic outcomes. But in this particular case, I think strategists have to question whether air power alone is going to be sufficient to accomplish Israeli strategic objectives. Yeah, which also brings up interesting, you know, bigger questions about the whole concept of Mabam, right? Right. If militaries conduct, you know, violence on behalf of the state, um, that's only one way to get to an outcome that's better for society. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting challenge as an air power guy myself. It is difficult for me to even say this, but I think objectively as analysts, as researchers, for those of us who study history, we have to look at some of these cases and recognize that it is in fact possible to win every engagement. The military can win every engagement and still not accomplish the strategic outcomes of the state. And that in a nutshell, is my concern in this instance and something that I I presume the Israelis are aware of. And I presume debates are happening to this day in, are we getting the outcomes we want? Our measures of performance are excellent, but are the measures of effectiveness leading us to strategic outcomes that are more? I'm sure there's a lot of debate. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm reading my Israeli uh, news well. <laughs> yep. um, yes. So a lot of very interesting information. And before we close, is there anything else that you'd like to finish off with? I guess I would just say one thing to any other sort of junior field grade officers listening to this, to any other Air Force folks listening to this. This was my first attempt at writing and publishing an article. It was incredibly rewarding. And thank you, Dr. Goodrow, for your assistance, your advice in making this come to fruition. And I would just encourage folks, I think there are more voices needed in this field. There are a lot of great authors, great writers, and great thinkers out there in the military strategy field. But I think those of us with operational perspective and experience should be contributing to this debate. And I would encourage anyone to sit down and just write whatever comes to your mind, work with a great editing team as we have there at the Ether Journal, and get some of this stuff published, because I think it contributes and enriches the debate that should be happening around the role of air power today. Well, I think so too. (laughs) Josh, thank you so much. We really appreciate you joining us on the podcast today. And I commend your article to our readers. It is Iran, Israel, and the struggle for the skies over the Middle East in our spring 2023 issue of Ether. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for having me.